I'd like us to start a series tonight, partly as an introduction, but in the coming weeks particularly, to consider the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia. I don't plan to cover the whole of the book of Revelation, stop me if I do, but the plan will be to give an introduction tonight, and I have one aim, to give you a bunch of keys to open the book of Revelation. As we come in future weeks to the seven letters, to the seven churches, you will see that these are not, as some have suggested and taught, a prophecy of consecutive ages of time. Some people have weird and wonderful ways to fit them in to exact dates to predict the end of the world. It's not that intention at all. But the purpose of the seven churches is to describe us as believers. What kind of Christian are we? What kind of church are we? And I think we'll see in the seven churches aspects, warnings, encouragements that will fit each particular kind of believer. But it doesn't seem right to me to start in chapter 2 and 3 until we've seen the context the context of the book of Revelation. There are surveys done. People are sometimes asked, which book of the Bible would you like your pastor to preach on next? And there's also surveys done to ask, which book of the Bible would your pastor not like to preach on next? And the book of the Bible that comes up is the same book. And it's the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation which confuses and at the same time it obsesses. It obsesses the mind and sometimes over much. I'm not sure it's right to say that we should be over obsessed with any part of the word of God. But what I mean by this is it can be at the exclusion of the rest of the Word of God. I've known of people that it seems to be the only book they study. They seem to be preoccupied. To them it's the most wonderful mystery. But for some it can become too much of an obsession. And I think it's right that we should study the whole counsel of God. I try to preach from every book of the Bible not necessarily through one year, but through several years, so that we get to see the whole counsel of God. So we come to the book of Revelation. Martin Luther and some of the reformers, they didn't much like the book of Revelation. Martin Luther said it was not for ordinary people. Well, I think we're all ordinary people, pastors particularly. So for some, it's a book of endless speculation about the future. A book where we ask questions that we're not supposed to ask. There are things about the end times and the mystery of eternity that we won't know until the end times and until eternity. And I think it can be a distraction from our main calling which is to love the Lord now, where he's put us, where we are in this time, in this generation, like Esther. Who knows 
If the Lord has brought us for such a time as this, we don't need to think too much about what will happen. That will take care of itself. But we need to think of where the Lord has put us now. Well, the book of Revelation, the name Revelation means an unveiling, literally a turning back of the curtain so that we get a glimpse and a view of future things. But much more than that, so we can see God's eternal purposes. That's really the book of Revelation. It's not just looking into the future. It's explaining everything that's happening in the church age and God's one unified purpose behind it. Some people see it as only prophetic revelation of the future. But it's much better to think of it as an unveiling of God's purposes in the church era. The name unveiling is ironic because for many it's shrouded as a book. It's a book which they think is so complicated, but really it's not. Most of the symbols, the figures, the types are picked up from the Old Testament. And if we understand them in Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, then we will understand a good deal of what it means in the book of Revelation. It's a book, verse 3, chapter 1, which has this special promise at the beginning of it. I don't think there's any other book in the Bible that specifically says, as it says here, chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed is he that readeth and that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. A book with a promised blessing at the beginning. But as you know, at the end, Revelation 22, 18 and 19, there's a curse. There's a warning for anybody that takes away from it or adds to it. And I include within that embellishing, adding to it things that we're not supposed to add, which are not made clear to us. If the Lord wanted us to know, he'd make it clear. So there's a stark warning. Well, the book, the key to really understanding it is there are seven distinct visions within it and people go wrong because they think that the visions again are joined up in history rather than being a panorama of the same events here's an illustration it's not a good one but imagine there's a murder mystery you know those Agatha Christie type murder mysteries there's seven people in a house and there's one on top of that, making eight altogether, who is the murderer? But you don't know who that person is. And so you get seven accounts of what's happened. They each only saw a bit. When you put all their accounts together, then it becomes a lot, lot clearer. And it's really a bit like that with the book of Revelation. You have a panorama but it's only a narrow angle lens that you've seen through. Whereas the book of Revelation, these seven distinct visions, they give us God's purpose for the whole of time. And these really should be lined up together. They should be lined up horizontally, as it were, rather than vertically. Well, the author of this book, I don't know which Bible you have in front of you tonight, 
the title will either be called The Revelation of St. John the Divine or it might be called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Both, I think, are right because you see in verse 1 it tells us that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ which was given by God to Christ and Christ would appear by his angel unto his servant John. So three are involved, God the Father, Christ and the immediate agent which was John. John who was the apostle, the beloved apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, the longest surviving <coughs> apostle. We know that the book was either written, Revelation, it was either written in AD 67 or more likely AD 96. There was two emperors who fell in that time. There was Nero, the one who accused the Christians of starting the fire that was in Rome. And Tacitus, one of the old historians, tells us that it wasn't the Christians' fault at all. The streets and the houses were so closely packed in Rome, it was most likely started in a shop or in a baker's, but Nero thought it was very convenient. Blame the Christians. And so after AD 64, when the fire started, and AD 67, when the emperor changed, persecution was unleashed across the whole of the churches that were spreading out. And that's why the gospel was propelled even faster across Asia. It's possible and maybe probable for some that Revelation was written as late as AD 96. That would have been under the rule of Domitian. He also was a savage ruler who caused the churches to be uh, tested and tried. When you look at verse 9, it makes a bit more sense in this context with Nero or Domitian's persecution. Revelation 1.9, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation. It seems as though the trials, the persecution, the heat from the emperor or emperors had been unleashed upon the churches. And when you stand back from the book of Revelation... Really what this is all about is preparing the church for a time of dreadful opposition. And the preparation is to say that actually throughout all these traumas and trials that the church is going to go through, God is in control and God will fulfill his purposes through things that seem at the time to be painful and difficult, but the Lord will have his purposes. So we see that here, John, the author. Well, who was the readership of this book? Who was it to be read by? Very many times during the book of Revelation, we see that it's principally addressed to the servants of Christ. Who's that? That's all believers. Maybe it's no coincidence that so many people struggle with this book and make fanciful ideas because they're not servants of the Lord. And they've come at it with an agenda and they've sought to read into it what is not intended to be there. But no, it says, verse 1, 
that this was given unto his servant John. And then all the way through, I can give you one more reference, but there's many others. Chapter 7 and verse 3, you'll see again the mention of servants. Chapter 7, verse 3, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Many references to servants. That's who this book was written to. The word for servant is the, the word for bond slave, somebody that surrendered to Christ and now they're in the church. They've joined a local church and now they're experiencing persecution and trial. They're literally attached as bond servants but willingly unto their saviour, unto Christ. That's the readership of the book and we see that again and again. Well, what of the purpose? We're going to come to some of the themes, but what of the purpose? Well, is there any other book in the Bible that pulls together more of the rest of Scripture than the book of Revelation? The number of quotes and references and types and symbols and numbers and colours that the book of Revelation has they wouldn't make sense unless you had the rest of the Bible. And the opposite can be said. If you just had Revelation and out the opposite, without the, the rest, you wouldn't understand Revelation. It's so cohesive. This is divine literature. This is God prepared. Well, the book of Revelation contains the seraphim of Isaiah, the cherubim of Ezekiel, the beasts, we know more about them, of Daniel. If ever there was a book which illustrated that the book of the Bible has one author, one spiritual divine author, even though there may be up to 40 human authors, it is the book of Revelation. It is sealed by the Holy Spirit. This is a work of God. It's been said that Isaiah was to the Old Testament Jewish church what revelation is to the Christian church. It is, in a way, New Testament thoughts expressed in Old Testament pictures and symbols. So this is evidently divine literature. Well, this is the thing that people need to understand, the seven cycles we haven't got time to go into any of them in detail tonight, but there are seven cycles, seven views of God's purposes contained throughout the book of Revelation. The first one, which we're going to study, is contained in chapters 1 to 5. This is the seven types of spiritual life, seven types of spiritual life pictured in the seven churches. That's one cycle. We've seen that referred to in chapter 1, and then the letters are contained in chapters 2 and chapters 3. The second cycle that you can see clearly, and when you're reading through this book, you need to say, which cycle am I in? The second cycle is the seals. The seals, which could only be unlocked, opened by those who were authorised. 
Of course, the famous words are that Christ alone was worthy to open the seals. They searched here and there for one who was worthy. And it was only the Lamb that was worthy to open the seal. Seven seals. Only Christ could open the seals and see the purposes of God unfolded. That's in chapters 6 and 7. The third cycle is about the trumpets. What's a trumpet about? I want to show you some of the symbols are really not difficult. A trumpet is always about somebody that comes with a vital, important message. And the seven trumpets picture the perfect judgment of God in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's chapters 8 through 11. Christ will come again. He will judge the world and he will judge all those particularly who are outside of Christ. The fourth cycle, the fourth clear cycle, chapters 12 to 14 is the dragon and the two beasts. This is where people begin to get lost. There's a trinity of evil that will be unleashed and in the midst of what seems to be a horrible evil cycle which actually is running all the way through history, the Lord is in control and he's going to use it for the good of the church. And we'll see later that this is one of the characteristics of the New Testament versus the Old. There will be adversity and it's through persecution that the church will be built. The fifth one, the fifth cycle is chapters 15 to 16. This is the vials. A vial is a little container that will be opened. And in those vials, again, it will show God's judgments upon apostasy, false teaching. Any church teaching a false gospel, a gospel of works, a gospel of do, 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 a gospel that adds to Christ's finished work, which is not possible. Anybody that substitutes the Lord Jesus Christ and adds a bit more or takes a bit away, no, God's judgment will come on all apostasy and all false faith. The sixth one, chapter 17 to 19, Babylon and the false prophet in the end age we could spend far too long going through that and the seventh one is the doom of satan satan will be put down and god's judgment will be upon the ungodly while well, each cycle ends remember they run at the same time but it's quite clear that the end of each cycle is when Christ comes again. Turn to chapter 3. You know these verses. They're so well known, but very often used in a completely different, possibly legitimate way, maybe not. Chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Behold, I stand at the door. This is Christ speaking and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him. And will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. Even as I also overcame 
and am sat down with my Father in his throne. Christ is victorious. He stands at the door in time, but he has the full victory. He has overcome. Victory has already been secured. You turn to chapter 6, you see another interlude before a cycle ends and another one begins. Chapter 6 and verses 16 and 17. And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Here's the key verse. For the great day of his wrath is come. Judgment in this cycle. The cycle has ended. The judgment has come. And who shall be able to stand? There's a reference to Christ's coming. The second coming at the end of each cycle. That couldn't possibly be true if each cycle was added on to each other because it would be Christ coming seven times. That doesn't make sense. The Old Testament is prophesying Christ's first coming. The New Testament and particularly Revelation is prophesying his second coming. Well, here's an interesting thought. The Old Testament as well. When the people of God obeyed, the blessing was prosperity. That's interesting, isn't it? The Israelites, when they obeyed, their crops grew, the nation grew, and they knew great blessing. The New Testament is the opposite. Whenever there is obedience, there is adversity. And the Lord uses these cycles, these trials, these tribulations to grow the church. The church prospers when it's in adversity. It's the opposite of the Old Testament. Very interesting. Why is that? Well, I'll give several reasons. It enables us, as the New Testament tells us, to participate in a very small, shadowy way in the sufferings of Christ. We suffer and we get an instinct, an inkling, as to how he suffered and yet much, much more. It enables us to see that the victor will come through much tribulation. Those who live godly in Christ Jesus will know trials and tribulations. And it enables us to see that if we are to reign with Christ, we must first suffer with him. The object of these trials, which are all prophesied and shown in the book of Revelation, is to prepare the church, to prepare the church to rely on the Lord, to prepare the church for greater glory and to enable believers to become more resilient. Are we resilient in this day and age? We live in a comfortable time. We live where we don't have physical threat of persecution yet. And a pastor was telling me earlier this week that he's very concerned. He's preparing his church through a number of uh, Bible studies about the forthcoming persecution. He's convinced 
in the next couple of years, there will be an onslaught. And maybe there's good indications of that. But the trials are to prepare the church to be more resilient for spiritual conflict. But with the promise of a crown of glory. What about the numerology that we see in the book of Revelation? That's a study in its own. But just two numbers. Seven. Seven is everywhere in Revelation. Seven churches, seven stars, seven angels, seven golden candlesticks, seven vials, seven trumpets, thunders, beasts, plagues, mountains. What seven? Perfection, completeness, God's plan unfolded to achieve his purpose. But you know there's a greater number in Revelation than the number seven. The greater number is the number, not 144,000 or a thousand. The greater number is three. You see it everywhere. Go back to chapter one. Revelation is the book of the number three. Three for the triune God. I was reading yesterday of a sect in America that's gaining traction. They only believe in two persons of the Trinity. They believe the Holy Spirit is not part of the Godhead. He is an unseen and unknowable force in their teaching. But no, we see here in Revelation 1, this is a Trinitarian book. Let me just show you the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, which God, God the Father, gave unto him. And then you see down, further down, you see mention in verse 4 of the seven spirits. It's actually one spirit, but each church has access to the Holy Spirit, which leads them into all truth. We see here in verse 1, there's a three. In each of these verses, there's very often a triangle. There's three elements. You see here the mention of God. You see the mention of he. And you see the mention of John. If you look down in verse 4, it says here, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. Past, present, future. Three, three, three. You see it everywhere. It is the way that God's word is unfolded. It's not just preachers that have three-point sermons. Many of these verses have three points. And our God reveals himself in three persons very evidently in the book of Revelation. Well, it's a book of colours, not just a book of numbers, a book of colours. Look at chapter 1. We've got here the golden candlesticks. Speaking of glory, splendour, the church is pictured as gold. How can that be? Us. Pictured as gold, pure gold. Ah, because Christ has died for the church. And he's now purifying us. Gold. Gold is everywhere in the book of Revelation. What about the white? 
the mention of white, verse 14, his head and his hairs were white like wool. White is always purity. You see, it's not difficult looking at these symbols. The same symbols that we saw in Exodus on the door of the tabernacle. The same colours have the same meanings. His head and his hairs were white like wool and his eyes were as a flame of fire. White, white, white everywhere. Then you've got red, red for war and conflict. You've got purple for wealth and for royalty. You've got black for mourning and death. It's obvious. It's not so complicated. Sapphire for splendor, for beauty, for something which is so obviously of heaven. Sapphire paved courts. Well, let's look at the distinctive features of the book of Revelation. Before I come to four themes, we see in the book of Revelation, this is a Christ-centered book. It's been said, and I think it's right, Revelation is more about Christ than even the Gospels. The Gospels were about men and women and situations, and the Pharisees, and opposition. Revelation is about Christ. Christ is the main speaker. He's the main character. He's the one that writes the letters to the seven churches. It's a book about his presence with his people through trials and tribulations, sickness, troubles, and difficulty. It's his presence, it's his personality. We see him divine. We still see his human nature as well. It's a book which defines his power. And it's a book about his redemptive purpose. Presence, personality, power and purpose on every chapter. Let's come to these four themes and we finish really with this. The first big theme all the way through Revelation, is redemption. Redemption. We see it here, mentioned to us in verse 5. What a verse. Revelation 1.5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, witness to the truth, the witness to the Godhead, the first begotten of the dead, the one that rose, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. That's what the book of Revelation will be about. Redemption accomplished and then applied and the Lord's people upheld and kept. Do you know in the book of Revelation, the lamb is everywhere. The Lamb. There are 29 references to the Lamb, which is Christ. Let me just show you a few of them. Chapter 5 and verse 6. Here is Christ exalted, pictured as the Lamb. Chapter 5 and verse 6. We'll read verse 5 as well. Revelation 5, 5 and 6. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, 
hath prevailed. He's conquered. Victory is certain. To open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld and lo in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts. And in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. Having seven horns, seven eyes, horns for power, always for power, seven eyes for knowledge and wisdom and understanding, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Indeed, the Lamb has all the glory, the Lamb lifted up, the Lamb who is divine and yet Human. Look at verse 12, the same chapter, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing. An honour and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb for ever and ever. God the Father and the Lamb distinct next to each other, pictured in the centre of heaven. One more reference to the Lamb. Chapter 7 and verse 17. For the Lamb... Capital M in the authorised version. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. This is the Lamb that leads, the Lamb that feeds, the Lamb that guides, the Lamb's book of life. It's his book with his people written within it, washed in his blood. This is the Lamb that lights heaven. The Lamb. That's all the way through the book of Revelation. This is the Lamb. The Lamb's book. The Lamb's book of life and the Lamb's book in the whole Bible. This is a book about Christ. Secondly, a big theme, obviously. This is about the second coming. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. As I've said the Old Testament was about his first coming. The book of Revelation particularly is telling us of his second coming. That we need to be ready. That we need to be prepared. Do you know when you go through the verses of Revelation I'm told. One verse in every 11 mentions the coming of Christ. That's a lot isn't it? Nearly 10% of Revelation mentions the coming, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7 of chapter 1. Here it is right at the beginning. Behold, look, listen, take notice. He cometh with clouds. In secret? No. Every eye shall see him. Well, just his people. They also which pierced him. The people that rejected him. The people of every family, every human invented race. 
and all the peoples of the earth shall wail because of him. Why? Because they don't know him. Because they never knew him. Because they didn't anticipate his second coming. Because they weren't ready to meet him. Behold, he cometh. (coughs) Revelation will say again and again that he's coming. Revelation 19 is the great description. If you just turn to that, Revelation 19 and verse 11. Sorry that I'm jotting around, jumping around. Just trying to give you the themes, give you confidence to read this book and to understand it. Revelation 19, 11. I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. Who do you think that is? Of course, if it's white, it speaks of Christ. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and True. We've been introduced to the one that was faithful and true in chapter 1. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Christ, (coughs) he makes war with those who are against him. And one day he will judge all who are against him. This is the coming Christ. The Christ who will come in judgment. Well, the third theme, just two more. This is the book about the eternal reign of Christ. But there's a problem there. Do I think as sometimes as believers, we're tempted to think that one day Christ will be on his throne. That's not right. Christ is already on his throne. I hope he's on his throne in your heart tonight, that you've surrendered to his rule, his governance, his care, his protection, but he's already on the throne in his church and he's already on the throne in heaven. The coming, the second coming of Christ is when the whole world who've rejected him will see it, when every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is king of glory now. Well, the final thing, and this is what people get obsessed and preoccupied with, is clearly is a book that does tell us, maybe more than any other in the whole Bible, about eschatology, the last times, the times which are to come. A glimpse of eternity is given to us, a partial unfolding of the last times, but... As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, 9. I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man, what God hath prepared for them that love him. Only for them that love him. And we don't yet know. We've got a tiniest inkling through the book of Revelation. But one day, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should see him as he truly is. We just have a faint understanding now but the future will take care of itself because he is on the throne. The future destiny of the righteous and the wicked is clearly set out and we get a faint stroboscope flashlight across eternity. 
We don't know what it will be, but we know it will be glorious. We have many questions about heaven. As pastors, sometimes you get asked more questions about heaven than you do about earth. And we don't know the answers to all of them. We know a few, but we don't know whether there'll be dogs in heaven. We don't know whether there'll be cats and other things, but we do know that the lamb will be there. And we do know that he's already on the throne. And we do know that it will be glorious. Well, we come to the seven churches when we resume these studies.